Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll speak with Matthew Shannon, an associate professor of history at Emory and Henry College and the author of Losing Hearts and Minds, American-Iranian Relations in International Education During the Cold War, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2017. In his book, Shannon shows the complex role that Iranian student migration to the United States played in shaping the relations between the two countries. For U.S. policymakers, Iranian student migration to the United States served as a useful way to provide the Shah with the training and technical expertise necessary for his modernization program. But as Shannon shows, Iranian students quickly became immersed in the progressive student movements of the 1960s and eventually turned their critical energies to the Shah's own authoritarian regime, ultimately contributing to his overthrow during the 1979 Iranian Revolution. This fascinating monograph is full of many unexpected twists and turns, and will be of interest to historians of the United States and the world, U.S.-Iran relations, scholars of higher education, and anyone interested in this important era of U.S. foreign relations. I'm really pleased to have the chance to speak to Professor Shannon today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Um, I wanted to start before we get into the to the book itself. Uh, if you could just say a bit about your training um, as a historian and how you uh, developed this project, what initially sparked your interest in this topic. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. It's always the most difficult one to answer. <laughs> the reflective piece. Um, well, I guess I would just say that I was um, a freshman in college when 9-11 happened. So there was an immediate interest in the history of the U.S. relationship with the Middle East broadly defined, um, you know, just starting college when an event like that um, was happening. And of course, um, over the years, that interest or kind of, you know, question about the history of the United States and the Middle East got refined into uh, U.S.-Iran relations. So a few degrees removed from the initial question, uh, but nonetheless um, in, in the region. And um, I was frustrated at the time, I guess this would have been when I was doing my master's work at UNC Wilmington and my PhD work at Temple University about just the general lack of focus on um, kind of anything below the level of the state in the historiography of U.S.-Iran relations. That, of course, was changing uh, throughout the field, but a lot of those historiographic changes hadn't reached uh, the study of of U.S.-Iran relations. So at Temple University, I was trained as a historian of U.S. foreign relations um, with Richard Immerman and Petra Gerda were my two primary advisors. I also worked with uh, David Farber and and Jim Good as a very important um, outside reader and Iran specialist. Um, So the project developed as a dissertation um, within the context of of that uh, training. Uh, And of course, the dissertation got, you know, uh, gutted and (laughs) modified and reorganized (laughs) as I uh, transformed it into uh, a book, which I guess when you consider all of that time lumped together, it would be um, about uh, a decade. Um, So that's really kind of, I guess, the, the backstory and the kind of personal reflective uh, piece about, you know, why I became interested in the subject to begin with. Right. Thanks. Um, that's, that's really helpful. It's always great to know the kind of backstory and, and what 
know, drive the scholar to, to write, you know, spend uh, all these years, you know, writing, writing a dissertation on the topic, and then later turning that into a, into a monograph. Um, before we get into the, the argument of the, the core argument of the book, I want to uh, see if you could just tell our listeners about um, a little bit about U.S.-Iran relations uh, during the kind of early Cold War period and what a student, a, a Iranian student migration looked like uh, to the United States during this time in terms of the the kind of numbers and the nature of it and the organization supporting it. Yeah, um, really good question. So I'll talk first about just the general nature of U.S.-Iran relations during the Cold War and then um, kind of how uh, international education fit into it and what the general kind of maybe statistical outline of Iranian student migration to the U.S. was. Um, it's an important uh, context, the history of U.S.-Iran relations. When you're working on a book, it's important to kind of think about how to work in the narrative that readers who aren't experts in the field will be familiar with, with then the material that you were kind of often presenting to the experts in the field. In the book, I tried to do this in the chapter introductions, um, but it really is um, almost a four-decade-long history. The Shah of Iran um, is in uh, power for you know close to four decades with varying degrees of support from the United States uh, during this uh, period. It, it begins during the Second World War. Um, the first Pahlavi Shah uh, is overthrown by an allied uh, invasion and occupying force, which puts uh, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi on the, the peacock throne in 1941. And of course, the United States is involved in in that occupation. Coming out of the Second World War, Iran not immediately, but eventually evolves into, you know, what you might call a kind of client state in the early Cold War. The United States was the patron in that relationship and was providing military aid and economic assistance. Of course, the United States, um, um, the CIA intervenes in 1953 to remove a popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, from office, which really kind of uh, reinstalls and reasserts the Shah's power uh, in Iran. And after 1953, the United States, in a way, doubles down on its investment and it continues to support the Shah, who becomes one of the major pillars of US, uh, the U.S. Cold War alliance system uh, as we move into the 1960s and especially the um, the 1970s. So there's a lot of really rich material on the diplomatic history of U.S.-Iran relations and, of course, the uh, national security question and the, the military agreements and various forms of relationships between the United States and Iran in that, uh, in that uh, area. There's a lot of scholarship, as I'm sure we all know, on the you know, kind of flashpoints during this period. The 1953 coup gets revised each time we have a new batch of declassified documents uh, to consider. And there's really important research being done on all these subjects. Um, but the student question, of course, is related to this broader um, narrative. You, you really don't have too many Iranian students in the United States prior to the Second World War. There are, of course, Iranians, uh, various uh, you know, Iranian communities already emerging in the United States prior to the Second World War, but you don't have kind of this phenomenon of sustained educational migration until uh, after the, the Second World War. Um, it really begins, I argue, around 1950. This is when Fulbright Agreement and 
you know, point four and, and also military assistance agreements go online in Iran. Iran's kind of first in you know, most of these areas to sign an agreement with the United States and start to have the, the flow of, um, you know, kind of you know, maybe agricultural specialists and you know, officers in the Iranian army and people of uh, interest and influence in Iran coming over through these various programs beginning around 1950. There aren't more than a couple of hundred Iranian students in the United States uh, when this begins. Um, but by the time we get to the revolution of 1979, we have a significant number. Iran is the largest, um, but there are more Iranian students in the United States than there are students from any other country by the time of the revolution of 1979, over 50,000, depending on how you count um, you know, visas and status and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, it grows over time, just kind of, you know, roughly speaking, we can say about 5,000 Iranian students in the U.S. around 1960, maybe 12 to 15 around 1970. And then, of course, there's an explosion in the 1970s for a lot of different reasons that takes the, the, the number uh, much higher. Um, so because the United States and Iran are allies, important allies, uh, Iran is one of the most important Cold War allies that the United States had, uh, there is kind of inter an international infrastructure that uh, provides for the movement of people and ideas between those countries. And of course, kind of uh, within that um, you know, kind of context, there's a lot of room for maneuvering and people have their kind of own ideas and explore their own uh, kind of interests and advocate for their own positions as they kind of move uh, between the United States. Um, uh, and Iran. So I would say that's how the student migration story relates to the kind of broader narrative of the U.S.-Iran relationship during the Cold War that maybe more people are familiar with. Great. Thanks. Um, I want to now kind of move more towards the, the central argument of the book. I think something that I really liked uh, about the book is the way you show how, you know, the imagined um, utility that U.S. policymakers um, thought that international education, student migration in particular, would have on U.S.-Iran relations, you know, didn't turn out the way they quite expected. And you show the, the great irony there. Um, so with that in mind, could you kind of just walk us through what happens? What is the kind of imagined utility of sponsoring uh, Iranian students come to the United States? And then what ends up happening once they, they come to the U.S. And, and later when they return to Iran? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we'll try to do all, all three of those. Um, well, um, so there is a history of, you know, the U.S. and various state and non-state American actors promoting uh, educational ties with between the United States and the world. Um, and we have, you know, the, a lot of, when I was writing this book, a lot of the best histories were on, for instance, you know, kind of U.S.-China educational relations and uh, various kind of uh, educational relationships that existed, um, you know, maybe in the early 20th century or, or, what, or whatever it uh, uh, may be. Um, many of those older, let's say, older in quotes, um, kind of organizations remain very active during the Cold War. It's not as if they disappear uh, because the national security state gets interested in international education. So I would just kind of preface it uh, with that. Um, but the idea is um, that just like perhaps in the 30s, um, the U.S. government believed that 
educational ties might be a way to combat fascism in the Western Hemisphere mm. or promote intra-American ties or whatever, um, whatever it may be. In the early Cold War, the, the idea was that with countries like Iran, over 6,000 miles away from the United States, that education would be a way to kind of um, you know, kind of bind together uh, partners in this Cold War alliance system. In the early Cold War, we know the United States was alarmed that the Soviet Union seemed to have the edge in a lot of cultural programming and the support of various student and worker organizations and, and all of it. Um, so by the time we get around 1950, kind of let's just think about that date, we have the Truman administration kind of thinking about how it can regain its footing in uh, kind of non-military Cold War competition. It's a difficult thing to do, especially during once we get into the McCarthy, McCarthy era. Um, but nonetheless, this is kind of what Truman is thinking about. He articulates it in the you know, point four and his inaugural uh, and, and, and um, in a lot of other in a lot of other ways. So the idea is that the United States can kind of use these non-military uh, kind of initiatives, the so-called fourth dimensions of U.S. foreign policy to kind of regain uh, the advantage vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union in areas that weren't about nuclear competition or uh, military uh, might. Um, uh, this happens in other ways. I mentioned kind of point four Fulbright um, in the 1950s, groups like the American Friends of the Middle East and the Ford Foundation get very involved in promoting international education. The CIA is often providing kind of behind the scenes support for many of these uh, nominally private organizations, uh, the State Department, the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs records are a wealth of information about kind of the official cultural and educational exchanges between the United States and um, other parts of the world. And of course, in addition to all of these kind of um, incentives, you know, maybe pull, pull factors uh, that would have brought Iranian students to the United States, um, Many of the Iranians, as of the mid-60s, the majority of the Iranians in the U.S. were self-supported, right? So these were individual initiatives and families that often had histories of sending um, their children perhaps to Europe in one generation in the United States and the, in the next generation to uh, receive some kind of education. But because, you know, like we don't have sanctions or something prohibiting Iran, we actually have incentives for Iranians to come to the United mm -hmm. States in the Cold War. Right, and th and this is um, primarily because it's viewed as a, as a something that will benefit the United States. Students would come to the United States; they would make American friends, they would study in American universities, they would de develop uh, affinities for American culture. Uh, perhaps you know, remain good anti-communists from the perspective of U.S. policymakers. Uh, go back to Iran and help uh, teach in military schools, or help. Uh, run the oil industry or run for uh, office in the majlis in the parliament or uh, work for one of the Shah's many um, kind of development bureaus within the government, especially the plan organization, which is a case I uh, discuss. So once returned, so it was envisioned, Iranians who were educated in the United States would provide the Shah with the human capital that he needed to you know, kind of quote unquote modernize Iran, and uh, really what that meant in Iran was kind of pursue his what he called the White uh, Revolution, which had a range of uh, various initiatives, including the 
promotion of literacy and, and, and land reform and other things. And that, of course, did happen, right? This is something that I tried to show in various portions of, of the book, although I, I think that over the years, it seems that the argument about the kind of dissent and the human rights piece has certainly um, kind of stuck out to readers more. Uh, but that there are people who go back to Iran and do very important things you know, for the Iranian government. They have you know, very you know, reputable careers and uh, often live kind of distinguished personal and professional lives uh, that get really um, turned upside down and sometimes violently interrupted by the revolution of 1979. Um, but uh, as um, kind of um, we know, and as I argue in the book, education and kind of it provides a lot of different opportunities that you know kind of can't be constrained or defined by uh, U.S. policymakers. Um, so, in the early 1960s, we have anti-Shah Iranian students getting kind of access to Kennedy administration uh, advisors, trying to urge Kennedy to kind of you know maybe pursue pursue a different path in Iran or push the Shah to reform politically as opposed to just in the socioeconomic realm. We have students from Iran on American uh, campuses interacting with you know, students, American students in the 1960s, and they're talking about kind of the nature of various political systems and what did it mean to be uh, part of the free world and, and uh, by contrast, what did authoritarianism look like in a country uh, like Iran, and how was the United States in various ways responsible for kind of the contradictions in our understanding of the free world. And in the 1970s, um, there are many more kind of Americans who would get interested and involved in these these conversations, um, and it takes on this kind of much broader um, discourse and, and much more difficult to define discourse, actually, of human rights, um, where Iranian students and American opponents of U.S. Cold War interventionism in the aftermath of Vietnam and, and Watergate um, uh, are now seeing the Shah as a liability and human rights activists are asking um, the United States to kind of uh, you know, be true to its word and not support governments like the Shah of Iran uh, uh, or maybe Pinochet's Chile or uh, whatever uh, the, the, the case may be. Uh, so I argue that this human rights discourse in the 1970s um, really has a tremendous impact on the one hand with regard to the revolutionary movement. It certainly uh, kind of uh, provides a kind of a push to that uh, point of viability where people really begin to kind of feel a, a level of solidarity uh, and possibility within the context of the Iranian revolutionary uh, movement. It also really puts, perhaps more importantly, it puts the Shah on his, his heels because even before the uh, Carter administration, before Jimmy Carter is elected president, uh, we have this transnational human rights movement really, really bringing attention to the various violations of human rights uh, that were being committed in Iran, especially by the Shah's secret police, Sabah. Um, and in 1976, 1977, just a few years prior to the Shah's overthrow, he begins in a kind of um, you know, tentative and kind of inconsistent ways to uh, make some reforms to um, kind of address these types of international uh, concerns. This then signals um, a kind of position of weakness that many in the revolutionary movement uh, pick up on once the Shah begins to 
um, kind of make these concessions as a result of international human rights organizing. So this certainly would never have, you know, the situation, let's say in 1976, could never have been imagined by, you know, maybe a George Kennan or somebody in the early Cold War who was talking about kind of various ways that the United States could um, pursue a strategy of containment. And one of those, of course, in the early Cold War would have been through cultural programming, which by the 1970s takes on a life of its own. Great. Thank you for that uh, that really helpful overview. Um, I want to turn now to focusing more on the students and specifically the students, the Iranian students in the United States. Um, can you speak a little bit about how they became sort of uh, embedded in American university uh, activist culture and talk a little bit about the student organizations that they formed and how those um, interacted with existing um, American uh, student organizations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question. Um, there, there really is a robust um, organizational culture within the Iranian student diaspora during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. It's so robust, it can kind of become overwhelming uh, sometimes, especially as we get toward the, the, the latter period. Um, but in the book, I focus on a group that was established in 1953, just in the immediate aftermath of the coup. Um, and the group is called the Iranian Student Association in the United States. That group is um, established with the support of an American NGO called the American Friends of the Middle East. Um, the American Friends of the Middle East established different student organizations, often kind of based around the nationality of the the student. Um, um, And they did this in the the 1950s, starting in the 1950s. The American Friends of the Middle East, I believe, was established in 1951. So within two years, they get these student organizations online. Uh, There's a picture in the book, one of my favorite pictures in the book, of the first meeting of the Iranian Student Association in the United States. Uh, And the meeting was in Denver in August, um, maybe early September, uh, 1953. And it's just a stunning picture. There's so much to analyze in it. You could probably write a section analyzing um, uh, that image and who's in it and who is not in it and and all of it. Um, But throughout the 1950s, the Iranian Student Association continues to kind of be you know, one of the many cultural projects that the American Friends of the Middle East supports, both, you know, kind of with their personnel and with their uh, finances and especially with their uh, connections. But throughout the 1950s, there's, you know, kind of reports that suggest that there's kind of, um, there are problems brewing in the Iranian Student Association. Um, And those problems really erupt in 19... Uh, 60. Um, and in 1960, we have kind of an anti-Shah leadership elected um, to the Iranian Student Association. And they don't have a good relationship, say, with the Iranian ambassador in the United States and you know, with some of the kind of supporters that the original members of the, Amer- of the Iranian Student Association had. Um, that funding is severed in the early 1960s, um, the Iranian government 
you know, kind of takes a, an openly hostile stance against the Iranian Student Association after a kind of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what to call it, but at a, an Iranian event in Washington in spring 1961, there's like tables are flying, the two sides are fighting with each other about kind of the, you know, the future of, of, of Iran, the anti-Shah side and the pro-Shah side. There's an outpouring of editorials in American newspapers, both defending and criticizing the Shah around the time of this event. Uh, so by the time we move into the summer of 1961, it's safe to say that the Iranian Student Association in the United States is not what its supporters envisioned. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's more of an autonomous entity than it would have been in the mid-1950s. Um, they are joined, the Iranian students in the United States, um, by kind of their uh, compatriots from elsewhere in the world in 1962. Uh, there's a group called the Confederation of Iranian Students National Union. It's established and it represents students in the United States, Iranian students in Europe, and technically Iranian students in Iran, although it's difficult for the students from Iran to kind of leave and attend international Congresses because of just the nature of the Shah's government um, at at the time. So the Confederation of Iranian Students National Union would represent, you know, really the kind of anti-Shah um, members of the Iranian student diaspora in the United States. You had the Iranian Student Association, and it had chapters all around the country. Um, there, we are now having you know, kind of new scholarship on some of the individual chapters, for instance, Northern California um, is, is one that was uh, particularly uh, active. So the students in the United States were part of a, a broader umbrella organization that, you know, there was coordination, but also kind of independent action between the different constituent parts of both the ISA and the larger Confederation of Iranian Students. Um, the Confederation kind of fractures in the mid-1970s, but its constituent parts remain active uh, through the revolution. The Iranian Student Association remains active through the 1970s. Um, this is important because it provides Iranian students in the United States who are interested in being politically active with a kind of, um, you know, a, a network. I mean, you have, you know, they, you know how to get in contact with each other. You, uh, phone numbers and addresses and kind of various ways that you communicate before the days of you know, email and internet and, and, and that sort of thing. And they very much did uh, communicate not with, just with themselves, but with uh, American students. So uh, to address your question about um, how the various Iranian organizations interacted with American student organizations, um, we really have a couple of cases in the 1960s um, some of the usual suspects appear, like Students for a Democratic Society, especially in the latter part of the decade. But one of the more interesting discoveries, at least for me as I was doing the research, was um, what the papers of the U.S. National Student Association's International Commission, which are held at the Hoover Institute, what, what they revealed. Um, that's really where you had a substantial amount of dialogue and you know, communication typed letters uh, between American student leaders and Iranian uh, student leaders, um, you know, about their views, about you know, maybe visa issues, uh, about 
planning for upcoming student meetings and how to get certain resolutions uh, passed about who to meet in Europe if one was to be traveling uh, that way and want to have an interesting conversation. Um, so through, you know, 1964, 1965, you know, the first half of the 1960s, those first couple of years after the Iranian Student Association kind of goes rogue from its patrons, um, the group is in communication with the U.S. National Student Association, which is, you know, the official union of students in the U.S. at the time. It was kind of, you know, more conservative than S SDS, but it was you know, certainly more liberal than some of our more conservative American student organizations. And this is a group that really is full of, you know, liberal anti-communists. So they're, they're really uh, not interested in kind of communism in its various forms during the Cold War. And they, you know, are interested in making sure the Iranian Student Association doesn't get control of, isn't kind of in control, um, isn't controlled by communists. Um, but they kind of believe kind of these liberal principles about kind of democratic governance around the world. And there's a great book about the U.S. National Student Association that was maybe published five years ago or so, and, and we see that Iran wasn't the only case where this happened. Um, so the relationship between the leaders of the Iranian Student Association, especially Ali Fatemi, he's really the one that's doing the most uh, uh, communicating, um, and the U.S. National Student Association. This was, you know, it's an interesting insight into kind of that and the liberal 1960s that existed prior to, you know, this kind of what we typically read about and global 1968 narratives about, you know, kind of the radicalism and the, uh, you know, the you know, Che Guevara signs and Maoism mm. that we see in student movements, including the Iranian student movement in the late 60s. In the early 60s, we see a different type of student uh, coordination and cooperation. Um, and it's, um, it was one of the more, you know, pleasant surprises, I guess, uh, in the archival research. Yeah. And that, that provides a really great uh, segue to, to my next set of questions. This is about the, the research process for the book. And as someone who's uh, trying to, you know, just developing a dissertation on that deals with student migration and this topic of international education right now, I, I realize that the challenge sometimes of, of doing this type of research of specifically of you know, tracking students, trying to understand um, the longer term trajectory of some of these students, uh, foreign students who studied in the United States. And you've just given a great uh, sort of overview of what it was like to look at the interactions between student organizations. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it was like on kind of an individual student basis. How did you initially begin this research? Um, and how did you kind of follow those students uh, from their time in the U.S. to, to going to back to Iran and, and what challenges did you encounter? It's really interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, as far as the research goes, just generally speaking, um, you know, the book really is driven by, you know, English language archival research, mostly from the United States, but not exclusively. Um, it's stunning how much the Iranian student diaspora produced in English compared to other student diasporas in the United States. And it's stunning how much students appear in a range of various U.S. archives. And that's, you know, kind of those connections are really what animates uh, this history. There would be a range of perspectives one could take to study international education 
or in this case, the Iranian student movement or whatever it may be. Um, but official records are, you know, I think important, right? Um, the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs records are significant and, um, you know, the you know, aid mission records that exist at the National Archives, I think, provide a lot of information, you know, uh, Fulbright uh, records and uh, kind of, you know, exit essays that various uh, individual kind of grant recipients might write or biographical information you receive you can re you can kind of obtain and those records are, are significant so the you know the official records um, matter to this history um, but of course there are a lot of records that that uh, are not you know kind of government records I mean so um, if you think of all the various one of the things that I don't know maybe you've come across this and studying U.S. Latin American educational relations, but like there's no central clearinghouse for, for, you know, international education. There are so many different actors. So even if you do, let's say, go read the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs records, which are located at the University of Arkansas, you're going to miss uh, so much. Um, you know, the Ford Foundation has its own records. And if you want to understand kind of the Ford Foundation's involvement in international education, you would have to go to the Rockefeller Archive Center in, in New York and, and go through the Ford records or, you know, they, there are other records that exist at that archive. Um, I mentioned kind of private um, collections, papers of organizations like the U.S. National Student Association or uh, William Douglas, the Supreme Court Justice, was really uh, interested in Iran and he had kind of a, a lot of really wonderful documents and um, letters. So I guess I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a, a mix of state and non-state kind of records that are going to give you very different perspectives. And you know, one could add, although I did not in this book, oral history, and it's become very clear that through oral history, scholars are able to get at some of the more kind of intimate questions uh, and kind of you know, subjective um, you know, perspectives that. Uh, really kind of make international education interesting. You can get at those through oral history in a way that you might not be able to get at through state or non-state records. Um, so kind of archival hybridity, whatever that means for a particular research project, I think is really, really significant. Um, how to kind of use those documents or whatever sources we may have to trace individuals through the whole history is, you know, a really difficult thing to do. Um, and uh, that is something, as kind of you alluded to in the question, that I do with a few actors, um, two of the most significant members of the kind of anti-Shah group in the Iranian Student Association early 60s were Ali Fatemi and Sadek Gopsadeh. And uh, Gopsadeh becomes, a, you know, he's sitting next to Ayatollah Khomeini on the mm way back to Iran in, in 1979 and becomes head of the National Iranian Radio and Television Network and he becomes foreign minister uh, during the hostage crisis before his execution in the early 1980s. So like so many of the individuals who do go back, it, the story is not does not have a happy ending. Um, but um, you, you find those individuals, uh, Gopsadeh is a great example. So how, the, how could one kind of trace his history through the records. Um, he corresponded with U.S. students 
in the early 1960s. Uh, he was a kind of partner of the of Ali Fatemi, and so you're getting kind of references to him and kind of other people's correspondences at that time. Uh, he, his he, his name comes up, and documents authored by him come up in the files of human rights activists in the mid 1970s. Um, he was. Uh, uh, there's a, a, um, a biography written by somebody who was very close to him um, during the 1970s, and, and her, her kind of biography was an unbelievable source of material. She's kind of quoting documents and kind of various um, kind of items that presumably she on, only she had uh, access to. So in that case, we had kind of almost like a memoir written by somebody very close to the individual. It's, it's almost like a memoir. It's that mm. kind of close perspective. Um, uh, and, you know, with some of these individuals, you might be really lucky in the case of U.S.-Iran relations. There are, you know, some, there's a history of encyclopedic work. Abbas Milani's Eminent Persians contains, you know, a couple page biographies of many of the movers and shakers of the mm. Pahlavi era. And that was invaluable to fill gaps um, in some of these biographies. Um, so, you know, the secondary literature is, you know, when you're thinking about the biographies, often you'll find work and that has been written by people who were familiar with, you know, the individuals you're you're studying, and that can kind of give you a much more human perspective on a life than uh, you know any of the other documents might. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. I mean, as it seems that you know you've suggested, it's it's a difficult process. It's kind of um, one has to seek out many sources and try to and hope that you find uh, the information you're looking for here. But I mean, I think I, I really appreciate the, the difficulty of, of this task, but um, when one is able to do it, it really is, is fascinating to, to trace these, these historical actors. Um, yeah, I would, I would yeah. agree. And just to follow up on that, as you probably yeah. are discovering in your own research, a lot of times when you're hmm. writing an international history, you'll, you know, you don't find the type of biographic material on really important actors from another part of the world that we might have for American actors. So, you know, as we're writing international histories and, you know, we come across figures who are just kind of central uh, in the history uh, that we're uh, studying, it's, you know, I think it's, it's valuable to kind of get that biographical material out there um, because readers will learn more about, you know, kind of histories that people know in other parts of the world, perhaps, but maybe don't know in the United States as, as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think in the book, you, you do a you know, really great job of combining, sort of balancing the, the high-level institutional um, history of international education and the kind of State Department aspect with those uh, individual stories. And I think it makes it um, you know, so enjoyable to read, um, to have that kind of, um, yeah, these, these historical um, the set of historical actors here, not just uh, necessarily sort of elite actors working for the either of the two governments, but also these these students. And I think, um, yeah, that's something I'm certainly striving for in my work. Um, we're coming in the on uh, the last few minutes uh, together here, so I wanted to end by asking you about um, what you're currently working on and how it might relate uh, to this uh, your first book um, on on. Uh, on international education. Yeah. Um, well, I just, uh, before I get to that, just, I want to thank you, um, for, you know, inviting me to be on the program and have this conversation 
with you. You know, you do such a great service to all of us historians out here, especially during the pandemic, who are kind of craving some, you know, kind of interaction and discussion, but maybe it's difficult <laughs> to get um, over the course of the last year. So just thank you for what you're doing and thank you for uh, inviting me to be on here with you. Um, as far as future research, I really have two projects right now. Um, one is a more immediate. It's an edited book. It's called American-Iranian Dialogues from Constitution to White Revolution, and it'll be part of Bloomsbury's New Approaches to International History series. It'll be out this summer sometime, and it brings together, you know, let's say, 10 chapters or so. Um, that examine the various types of cultural and transnational relationships that Americans and Iranians um, had from the late 19th century and the lead up to Iran's constitutional revolution um, and through the Shah's white revolution of the 1960s. So we stopped short of 1979, which allows us to really explore some issues that maybe haven't been explored in the past and to move away from the kind of teleologies that uh, often you know, kind of flow from an event like 1979. Um, so that's, that's an exciting project. Um, it's just great to be a part of uh, this and to work with this great group of scholars. Um, in a more long-term sense, although not that long-term, um, I'm working on a monograph and it's on American missionaries in Iran in the mid 20th century. It's called Mission Manifest. Uh, and it looks at the missionaries, the broader American mission, and the kind of colony of Americans that existed in Iran in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. So if Losing Hearts and Minds looked at Iranian students coming to the United States, uh, this book, this next project, looks at kind of the other side of the coin with the Presbyterian American missionaries who uh, went to Iran and engaged in a range of uh, activity uh, through the entirety of the Pahlavi period. And so those are really the two uh, projects that I've been working on recently. Great. Well, I mean, those both sound really fascinating and I'll, I'll look forward to, uh, to reading them uh, when, when they're published. Um, but let me just thank you again for, for joining us on the a New Books Network. And um, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Take care.